This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. This week's episode, we have Mark and Kevin from Tagomi. Tagomi is a new startup that's backed by Peter Thiel and the Founders Fund, in addition to a bunch of other very prominent investors. They have an amazing team that they've amassed from Union Square Ventures to Virtu to uh, Goldman Sachs, a really impressive team, institutional quality team that's building a piece of crypto infrastructure that's incredibly important for data transparency and for price discovery. It's really quite impressive what they've been able to build in such a short period of time. And we talked extensively with Mark and Kevin about the tools that they're creating, why they're creating it, getting off zero, and how they've actually been able to show some RIAs, the, the product itself, and getting them off of zero using Tagomi. And so I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I was excited about what they're building. What did you think, Amanda? Uh, I think that the most interesting thing for me is seeing how the prime services and prime brokerage model is really going to translate over to crypto. So I know that Tagomi is initially starting you know, with with basic portions of the prime brokerage model and not necessarily going into full margin and lending yet. But I'm very interested to see how the capital requirements and risk model will change or stay the same as they delve into crypto assets. Um, And one of the other really interesting pieces we got into was the evolution of crypto custody um, and how various kinds of crypto custody fit into their model. Because, of course, you know, a key part of the prime services model is being able to provide assurance to your clients that these assets are properly custodied. So I'm very interested to see how those pieces turn out. I agree. And the other things that I think that we talked about that were interesting were derivatives and the stablecoin conversation that's been ongoing for the last few months within crypto and crypto Twitter. And so it was a great conversation. Uh, We also got to learn a little bit about some of their Game of Thrones characters that they like and some of the books that they're reading. It was a really fun conversation. I think you all will enjoy it. And so with that, I'll let Amanda talk about her disclaimer. All right, guys, as usual, everyone, please remember that nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice or should be construed as such. Please do your own research. And on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, The Block. The Block is a leading news and information source in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. The team of experts provides deep, objective research, analysis, and journalism on a daily basis via its website and newsletter. Check out The Block at theblockcrypto.com. This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Baselayer. Today we have Mark and Kevin from Tagomi coming on who are building a impeccable piece of crypto infrastructure for digital assets and for portfolio management. Mark and Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So if you could, uh, for the listeners, give us a, a, a brief update about yourselves, uh, about Tagomi, and then we have lots of questions uh, to unpack about what you guys are building and why you guys are building it. Yeah, sure. I can go first. So I'm Mark. I'm one of the co-founders over at Tagomi. 
Um, my background in the space is I was working with Cal Vapuri over at Brainchild investing in uh, cryptocurrencies and different protocol layers. So ended up investing in businesses like Blockstack and Algorand and Zeppelin. Um, and yeah, we have, have always found it really interesting, the applications, especially on the more tech and protocol level. Um, you know, one of the reasons uh, Tagomi got started, and I believed in Jen and Greg's vision for building out an agency brokerage in the space, was I saw firsthand family offices, um, larger funds, and others really looking for a more comprehensive, more transparent end-to-end -end solution for everything from trading to custody to settlement and thought that that was a really ambitious project, but one that could bring in new capital and new players to the space. And so very excited to have you know launched to go me and what we've built and excited to tell you more about it. And I'm Kevin Johnson. I joined uh, to me back in April. Prior to that, I've worked at a couple different hedge funds like Citadel and Two Sigma. And I worked at Getco, the market maker, uh, which became KCG. That's where I met Greg Tusar. Uh, and then when I got the opportunity to work with him again and kind of merged my electronic trading background with my, my newfound hobby in crypto, uh, it just seemed like a great opportunity. It's a really neat way to kind of take everything we've learned in finance and electronic trading over the last few years and bring it to a new asset class that's got a lot of, you know, a, a lot of interesting features and a lot of interesting technological challenges to it. Awesome. So I think what would be helpful is if you actually, uh, I've looked at, you know, I've done research, I've, I've talked to you guys before, and off of the site, I think there's something really interesting about your mission statement about why you actually created Tagomi. And so I think I'll just read that out. And then there's a really poignant question, I think, um, which will lead us into a whole bevy of other questions. But as you know, Mark alluded to, um, you guys have been, uh, some of you have been early investors in the, in the space in crypto with things like Zeppelin and Algorand. And so you noticed that there was a lack of disclosures and misaligned incentives and inadequate technology uh, brought to bear in the crypto space. So you said that, you know, having to go to multiple trading venues and banks and custody providers and accounting tools was really kind of a patchwork system and it wasn't really working very well. So my question, you know, to start us off is why in this age of financial technology, after 30 years of Bloomberg and FactSet and all the tools that we've seen, why do you think crypto would have to rely on a patchwork system from the get-go up until now when you guys have started creating your system? Yeah, I think a big part of that is it was just very retail-focused. So in 2015 and 16, you know, when you talk to folks buying crypto, it would be people buying 10000 or 20000 or $50,000 worth. It really wasn't more family offices or institutions. It was people who were seeing the value of a store of value that isn't controlled by any government, um, that's digital. And so it's definitely a more tech-oriented and libertarian-oriented um, group of people and uh, was specifically much more retail. And so they were being served by uh, exchanges globally in every country. Um, but, you know, there wasn't that sort of family office or endowment or venture capital interest for the most part. And so, you know, the, the businesses to be built was where the demand was, which was in retail. And so you saw many exchanges, you know, become very successful. I think that started to shift more in 2017. And as folks coming from family offices or even endowments or venture firms started looking at the asset more closely, you know, there was an expectation that there'd be a more robust infrastructure um, focused at institutional players 
but it wasn't there yet. And so, you know, we started really thinking about this project in late 2017 as, as that was occurring and we were seeing it firsthand um, and, you know, got to building it full time in early 2018. I think the other interesting thing, too, is that, you know, structurally, crypto exchanges are quite different than what you see in traditional equity or futures exchanges. You know, the exchanges we know now are sort of a combination of both, you know, a matching engine and a platform for trading, but also handling things like settlement and clearing in the same place. And so, you know, th that helps create some of the fragmentation that we've seen. You know, in, in previous lives, you know, we've never had to worry about you know, where we put our stock certificates or, you know, how do we how do we send money to an exchange? You know, those things are unique in the crypto space, I think. And traditional finance has figured out utilities and other ways to handle, you know, a lot of the things that we, you know, you know I think we took for granted in the past that are now issues in cryptocurrency. And that's, I think, part of the reason why having an agency brokerage like Tagomi is really important to, to handle a lot of those inefficiencies that still exist in the crypto space today. Um, so when you look at the crypto space as a whole, and I guess you look at, look at your team, you know, many of your team members have worked together at Citadel, Two Sigma, um, KCG, Goldman. So what is it about crypto that's bringing institutional talent to the forefront uh, to build this infrastructure in your minds? Yeah, I think um, I think it's an interesting mix of problems that we have solved before, but then new twists on all of those problems. You know, building matching engines and trading algos are, uh, you know, for any different asset class has a lot in common. But when you bring it into the crypto space and you also have to handle things like cold storage and wallets and then worrying about things like, uh, you know, settlement risk across different banks and things like that, it, it's it's a lot of familiarity with a lot of new twists on it. Um, and not even to mention just the blockchain aspect of everything that we're looking into, you know, certainly moving into things like DEXs in the future will bring a new layer of challenge to trading in places like that. So I think it's familiar enough to get going, but challenging enough then to be a really neat place to move your career. Um, so then also thinking on the side of institutions, but on the institutional investor side, um, the, the ever elusive crypto ETF has been um, on the minds, I think, of the broader crypto community as well as the institutional investment community as a whole. Do you think that crypto needs an ETF to be successful and bring in those institutional investors? I, I would say it's going to create another vehicle for people to invest. Um, you know, that being said, you know, with any ETF, there needs to be a very robust underlying market for whatever that ETF is wrapping up. And that's actually, you know, I think part of the SEC's concern about not approving anything yet is you know, they want to see a level of maturity and of price discovery uh, in the underlying asset before they can wrap it in something like an ETF. So even when an ETF gets created, uh, which I think eventually it will, um, you know, it will just be another venue to access, you know, cryptocurrencies as an investment. But it doesn't replace, you know, certainly the, the underlying spot market that needs to exist that we're going to be interacting with. So Tagomi is executing trades across multiple liquidity venues, uh, exchanges and OTT's desks, and you're talking about regulation, you're talking about more transparency in the market. How are you at Tagomi, how are you selecting the exchanges to work with the desks use in terms of counterparty risk? How are you guys assessing that? What are some of the parameters that you guys use? Yeah, it's a great question. We, we're definitely focusing on exchanges that you know, we understand their KYC process. We need to understand the counterparties that we'll be interacting with there. We're going to look at things like uh, their banking relationships. If it's a fiat exchange, you know, how easy is it for us to get you know, back either the crypto or the money that we have deposited there 
we'll take a look at their security. Um, you know, I think all of those things are important. Their their token selection, you know, to what extent are they, you know, trading commodity tokens or or things that might be deemed securities. You know, these are all things we're going to take a look at, I think. Um, and then in terms of dealers, you know, we we're acting as an agency brokerage, which is an important distinction here. You know, we're we're not making our money by marking up prices. We're we're giving our customers access to lots of liquidity pools, and we're passing along the good prices that we find for them. Uh, but we do interact with OTCs that can stream us liquidity, um, so it's a pretty interesting, uh, interesting interaction that we're able to provide. Um, so we're looking for OTCs that are sophisticated enough to be able to do that with us. So let's dig in there for a second. You you talked about good prices and price discovery in crypto has been talked about a lot. It's hard to discern if a price is good or not. How do you actually discern if a price is good? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think it's a it's really all about having access to multiple liquidity pools. If you have a single source of info, you know, you can never be sure how good that price stream is. But by connecting to lots of different lit venues, you know, understanding what's happening in the OTC space, um, you know, collecting good market data, you can start to build a strong picture of what an appropriate price is and create those benchmarks that are necessary. A lot of firms have done good work around creating indices and other things that we can use to uh, you know, to ensure that we can compare our prices that we're getting to you know, the broader market um, in addition to the, the data we collect directly. So it's really all about, you know, finding those sources of information, analyzing them appropriately, taking into account things like differences in fees, um, you know, or the different ways that we need to interact with exchanges. Um, you know, those are all things that need to be taken into account as well. Um, so when you're looking further into the future with exchanges. I think that a big thing people are talking about as well is the future of security token offerings and the, um, I guess the current inability for any exchanges to really deal with security tokens and trade them um, while still following basically all of the regulatory infrastructure that's been set out here in the US. So I would love to hear from both of you about what your opinions are on STOs um, and is that something that Togomi is considering supporting the trade of in the future? Yeah, definitely. I think we think it's very, very early days for that. Um, so, you know, we've obviously been in conversations with FINRA and the SEC and others and have got some great guidance from them and are doing everything we can to be able to trade those tokens and be fully compliant. Um, our CCO and our general counsel have been more leading the effort on that. Um, but, you know, we're excited about it. We obviously see what projects like Harbor and Trust Token and Securitize and others are doing. Um, and believe there's a real pent-up demand for liquid assets to be much more liquid and, and traded 24/7. But we also understand that the state of the market is there, you know, relatively few security tokens that exist. Um, they're not very liquid, and so you know we are waiting for I think a lot of the folks to build the infrastructure to then have those security tokens actually be on market when they are. You know, we're obviously building out the infrastructure on the tech and the legal and compliance side to be able to trade them across you know the partner exchanges that we work with who would trade them as well so then when do you view security tokens i guess one was one of the um street views about the potential drawbacks of security tokens is that while it gives perceived liquidity to the liquid assets there still has to be investor demand so do you Definitely. guys expect um, there to actually be investor demand for liquid versions of these liquid assets? Because I think we hear a lot about things like security tokens for real estate, but REITs already exist. You know, there, there is um, 
a way to move in and out of different types of real estate investments, um, potentially not single assets, but, you know, REITs have been around for a while. But people talk about more liquid things like the ability to move in and out of uh, private market deals or the ability to move in and out of things like um, like gems. Do, do you guys think that there will be real demand for those things? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. You know, I think using blockchain infrastructure, you know, certainly helps liquidity, but it's you know, necessary, but not sufficient, right? You know, to have strong liquidity on any market, you need that platform, but you also need market makers and natural customers to come to the table. So it's it's not the case that, you know, putting anything on a blockchain will make it liquid, right? Um, you know, I, I, we, we've talked to a lot of people that, that seem to think that the 24-hour nature of blockchains will magically make them traded 24 hours. And, you know, again, they only that will only happen if people are coming to the market all hours. Are there market makers available and standing ready to take both sides of the market at all times? So it's a great it's a great step and it certainly will help. But it also needs the participation of all the other market participants to really work and to become liquid. So why don't we take a step back? So we initially had talked about a patchwork system out there in crypto. And for anyone who has traded crypto will know that you have Excel spreadsheets open you have multiple different websites open for price discovery. You could probably have 50,000 different you know, screens up. Talk to us about what you've built and why you've built it and talk to us about the workflow if you could. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And we've certainly have seen that you know, when we go visit clients, you know, especially crypto hedge funds that have you know, operations where they're trading tokens across many venues. It's a complicated thing to manage. Um, you know, they're trading on different exchanges. Their balance sheet is split up between different banks and different regions. Um, you know, if a better price appears on a different exchange, they've got to scramble to move the capital around. It's a challenge. So, you know, I think one of the biggest problems we're trying to solve is bringing access to all those markets into one screen and allowing them to see, you know, what is the combined liquidity available across all the venues that we can connect to, and can they, it can interact with that using our smart order router and our trading algorithms. And then the other important thing, you know, like we mentioned earlier, because you know, most of these exchanges require pre-funding, um, you know, Tagomi is going to handle all of that capital movement necessary to allow you to trade on all those different venues. You don't need to worry about, you know, taking uh, you know, your capital and doing 10 different bank wires to different banks. That's something that Tagomi is going to handle for you. So we think both the combination of bringing the liquidity in one place, as well as, you know, handling you know, all of the, the treasury management that you would normally have to do really makes what we have a compelling offering. And when we explain it that way to crypto hedge funds, family offices, you know, anyone that's doing significant crypto trading, I think they can see the benefit. So I want to hone in um, on your discussion of capital for a second, because while one of the biggest selling points, I guess, for you guys is this ability to manage all of those processes, you know, prime brokerage has become an, an increasingly capital intensive business post crisis. Um, and having come from a large bank myself, it's certainly been an area that we've seen large institutions um, sort of divert to different strategies. Uh, you know, they've many big banks have alternated between both cup, cutting capital allocations to low profit PB clients, as well as actually switching back to grow those businesses in certain relationships. So given the capital intensive nature um, and the likelihood that those capital requirements aren't going away, how do you view the PB model um, fitting into crypto and how do you view it changing? Yeah, that's a great question. So prime brokerage traditionally in equities or other asset classes involves lots of different things. It involves 
not only you know providing access to markets, whether through a trading screen or DMA, um, providing settlement capability, clearing capability, and then most importantly, financing, right? You know, those things all sort of get wrapped into one and prime brokerage can make money in, in different ways. I think, you know, we certainly strive to provide all those services for our clients eventually. Um, we're focusing initially on the first two parts, right? Handling the execution and then the clearing and settlement and the treasury management. Um, you know, I think um, in terms of being capital intensive, you know, given that these exchanges are mostly pre-funded, um, we don't serve, we're not to worry about the balance sheet yet, but certainly when we move into other services like providing margin, uh, allowing people to lend coin or providing the capability to short, that's where it will become uh, a little bit more complicated. But we're certainly working with a lot of great providers to help offer those services to our clients. And it's definitely one of the most in-demand things we think from professional traders right now. I had a quick question, and it goes back to some of the premises that we were talking about before. So we've had legacy players in traditional markets for a while. You know, the the cap IQs, the fact sets, the Bloombergs. Why do you think they have been so slow to actually build into this asset class currently right now? Is it because they are taking an opinion that it's not real? Or are they taking an opinion, do you think, that it's very volatile and they don't want to get involved? I'm not asking you to put words into their mouths, but why do you think, or do you have any suspicion, why do you think that those behemoths have not really been more aggressive? We saw the market cap of crypto go from 850 to you know 120, but it was still $850 billion at one point in time about a year ago. Why do you think they have been ignoring it? I think part of it is they haven't been ignoring it. They've certainly been watching it, but it's just very different. So when you talk about a crypto exchange, it's something that, generally speaking, is very different than a traditional exchange. When you talk about custody in crypto, it looks totally different than what traditional custody would look like, um, where liquidity is coming from, how it was even created through mining, for example, is just a very different concept. And so I think you know these folks have had a long time to understand the equities world and shape it and craft it and build it. Um, you know we've had that experience through some of the team, but it's also important to have a nuanced understanding of the existing market. Um, and the different players. And so I think you know many of them have started working on projects. You see folks like Fidelity being the most public about you know what they're working on in custody and how they're thinking through the market. Um, you know, you see a lot of other ones have larger working groups and you know also planning on releasing different products. But it's certainly a pretty steep learning curve to understand the ecosystem and the players and to get comfortable around that um, and to risk you know, the rest of their business on this new sort of undefined, in their mind, um, subset of assets. And so I think they're going to have a lot more you know, hesitation to move in. For us, we see it as really exciting and, and something we're building out natively and a wedge to be working with really interesting partners and clients. And so, you know, we come from uh, a place of moving quickly and having a lot of excitement, but also, of course, temper that with people who are experienced in the equity world helping build out the system. To follow up on that, there's this meme or call, if you will, get off zero. <laughs> Um, and uh, we all know that who's credited for that one. This notion of get off zero, um, whereas pensions, family offices have not allocated to crypto. Why do you think 
or what do you think the hesitation has been? Is it because there hasn't been a tool like yours or hasn't been the data transparency like yours? Is there something fundamentally, because you've talked to a lot of family offices and you have some pretty pronounced investors like Peter Thiel, what are you what do you hear? What are you thinking about that in terms of getting off zero? Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, we use the institutional world really broadly here. Really what we're going after is any investor who has more sophistication and is placing slightly larger trades, you know, folks who are fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar trades and above. Um, and so at first the kind of more sophisticated class that is defined as institutional probably in crypto are high net worth individuals, family offices, venture funds, crypto specific funds. Um, but we're also seeing like, you know, one of the first customers of ours to place a trade um, was a traditional RIA who had never bought crypto and they decided to buy Bitcoin. And their thesis was the US economy and global economy is probably moving into a recession and they like buying uncorrelated assets. So they bought a lot more gold but they also bought a little bit of Bitcoin. So they got up zero and they did it through us, which was really exciting. Um, so, you know, we just think it's gonna be still a long cycle. Um, what we're defining as sophisticated today is more venture firms moving into it, more crypto funds, more family offices, more high net worth folks, especially if they made their money in tech. Um, and so, you know, that's the initial demand. Um, we're having conversations with larger banks, larger asset managers, you know, the folks who would be truly institutional pensions. One endowment, which backed um, a lot of different crypto funds, we've been chatting with too about directly buying Bitcoin, and they see the value there. So it's definitely a process, I think, to have more adoption of this space. But tools like ours, tools like great custody providers, um, tools that you know help on accounting and tax filing, all of these are are being built, and so we're very excited about that infrastructure layer. And then we're also excited about you know some of the assets that are coming out. So if you look at the progress of certain smart contract systems, whether it's you know Definity or Algorand or Cosmos, there's there are a lot of projects that should be shipping in the next 12 to 18 months that I think are are pretty exciting too. And there's less of the you know, random tokens and coins launching, doing big ICOs and more of the, you know, real tech teams coming to market with more interesting products. And so part of it is building the infrastructure for trading and for custody and settlement. But another big part of it, of course, is all the people working in the space to create really cool protocols, really cool, you know, networks on top of them as well that, that have a lot of value. So we have to get there um, on both fronts to really, I think, spark the interest of these larger asset managers. Um, so I want to dig into you specifically, you've mentioned custody a few times. So I want to dig into the future of the crypto custody model, because right now we have a couple divergent types of models. There's things like um, Zappo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, where you can uh, you know, custody your Bitcoin for free, but it's in a bun bunker and takes three days to transact. So it's potentially not useful for traders. And then there's other solutions like BitGo, um, as well as tech solutions like Casa, which actually allow funds and institutions to self-custody. So do you believe that the third-party custodians will be the answer? Um, do you think it'll be tech solutions that allow people to self-custody, or do you think it'll be a combination? Yeah, I definitely think it'll be a combination. We certainly have looked at a lot of different great providers that take very different approaches uh, to the space. Some you know, focusing a lot on physical security, some focusing on the technology. Um, and a lot of them are all applying for things like trust licenses, which are you know, really important if they're going to be custodying large amounts of assets for uh, institutional money managers. So I definitely see 
a mix of things supporting different kinds of use cases depending on what's most important to the uh, to the client. You know, if the client needs liquidity, um, if the client wants security, um, you know, if the client wants something that can plug easily into trading solutions, you know, those those will need different solutions. And, and certainly at Tagomi, when we work with our custody providers, we've we think we're working with some of the best, um, and we think we have a portfolio of them that provide the right mix of services for our clients. So jumping on that, just if you can, maybe talk to us a little bit more about key management. What are some of the things that you guys are doing there in regards to key management? Yeah, so for Tagomi, we're we're working with some of the best providers of both cold and hot wallets in the industry. Um, you know, we're we're not planning on reinventing that wheel ourselves. We're focusing on the technology for trading uh, and for clearing and settlement, uh, not so much on sort of the, the private key storage. So. Um, you know, we think we've got the right mix of partners there to keep our customers' funds safe and the right policies and procedures in place uh, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, we do the right thing. And in terms of the M&A activity, we've started to see a little bit of M&A activity pop up in DeFi. Uh, we, was, we had a call the, uh, with another uh, investor the other day, and we've learned of this new meme or phrase called DeFi, decentralized finance. Um, and so talk to us a little bit about what do you think the future, because you're both coming from an investor background, what do you think the near-term future of M&A activity, acquisitions of smaller brands, uh, or in your particular case, obviously some of the pipes or some of the custodials, maybe some of the, the tax providers, what do you think of the future of M&A activity in this space is going to look like in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> historically, there's obviously been some M&A, um, especially in the exchange space. Um, you know, exchanges have been, you know, really rich cash flow, so they're pretty interesting buyouts for, you know, both an option on the expansion of crypto, but then also just as a traditional play on, you know, multiples of cash flow. So there's certainly been quite a bit of exchange activity. Right now, the exchange ecosystem is very fragmented, so it wouldn't be surprising if there's a little bit more of a roll-up there, but it remains fragmented by geography. I think those are the largest assets to date in the space. Um, most of the other M&A we've seen, at least in the space, has been more acquire-esque. So, you know, people, there's a lot of great tech talent moving into the space and, and building products and teams. And many times they end up aligning with, you know, larger organizations. And so I think um, outside of the exchanges, a lot of the acquisition has been more to date kind of acquire-esque. Um, I think kind of going forward, it's it's really hard to tell what will happen. Um, many tools are complementary, you know, and we don't know if you have to acquire them to work together. So, for example, like what we're doing is integrating with several banks, several custodians, obviously multiple exchanges, OTC, OTC desks. I think there's going to be a lot more connectivity in the space and people working together because, you know, the pie today is obviously generally small, especially compared to equities or other traditional asset classes. So we definitely feel whether it's, you know, us using third-party tax resources or working with custodians, like there's going to be a lot more cooperation, especially now that we all have to kind of work together to, you know, help a new wave of clients who have higher expectations on the institutional side than, of course, retail clients do. Um, so I would, I would expect more collaboration, probably continued M&A around more acquisitions hires and then you know where it makes sense and their cash rich assets you'll continue to see some sort of um, condense you know reduction and fragmentation there um so I want to hone in on the idea of um, 
of these institutions having, uh, frankly, like a, a higher level of quality that needs to be attained in order to transact in an asset, right? Like we focused a lot on Bitcoin, but I know you've mentioned several other smart contract platforms that are coming to light. When you think about um, the, alt the altcoin bucket, how do you view determining what kind of uh, what what kind of tokens you're willing to transact in? Is it purely driven by customer demand? Is there an internal fundamentals based structure you guys implement in order to determine what you'd like to um, facilitate for your clients? Like, how do you decide that? Yeah, I think it's a, definitely a combination of things like client demand, certainly first and foremost, but then also very importantly, you know, what kind of regulatory regime do we think the token falls under? Um, you know, it's been great getting you know, a little bit more clarity on, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, Ethereum status as commodities, you know, things that we're able to trade with our money transmitter licenses. Um, you know, but you know, when you go further down the list, there's sort of the open question of what of these uh, tokens may be considered securities by the SEC. Um, and, and those are cases where, you know, we need to be a little bit more cautious about what we trade. Um, we're also following very closely this idea that, you know, when you know, potentially an ICO happens and something becomes sufficiently decentralized, does it then become a commodity like it appears that Ethereum is done? So, you know, th those are kinds of things we're watching very closely and, and that will have a big impact ultimately on the on the things that we are able to list. But we, we do certainly want to keep an eye on as well, you know, focusing on things that we think are, you know, projects that are, you know, things that our investors want to invest in. You know, we certainly don't plan on listing, you know, 2000 coins on our platform anytime soon. So to follow up on that, two questions, one on derivatives and one on stable coins. What is your opinion or what do you think of the market right now or the appetite for derivatives and will Togomi be able to uh, facilitate derivative trades on the system? And in addition to stable coins, are you monitoring the market? Are Again, as we spoke about altcoins, are you opining on specific uh, stable coins? as to their merits and to their registration. Um, and so talk a little bit about those two, if you could. Yeah, so on the derivatives front, we definitely see demand for derivatives. Um, part of that demand, I think, comes from the difficulty of getting into the cash market. So, you know, if you're a CTA and you're already connected to, um, you know, an FCM that can get you CME futures on Bitcoin, that's probably your path of least resistance. Um, but, you know, in a world where places like Tagomi can provide you equally easy access to the cash market, you know, that might take care of some of that demand for, for things like derivatives. You know, that being said, there's always room for, obviously, futures and options as hedging instruments uh, or speculation instruments. So, so we do see demand for those and, and we expect those to continue to grow. We're proactively looking at, you know, becoming an IB or something like that this year to be able to facilitate those transactions as well. But we think we made the right bet by starting on sort of filling the gap that was there in the cash market to begin with. Um, your stablecoin question is a great one. You know, I think stablecoins do a bunch of interesting things for us. Um, they can certainly reduce some of the friction of transferring value between different venues. Um, they allow us to trade on exchanges that otherwise might have been you know, more difficult to transact with. Um, we're definitely, you know, I, I don't think we're taking, you know, we're picking any one winner here, but certainly there are a lot of great projects that are out there that are all built on, you know, solid foundations where they're, you know, registered trust to begin with. They have great KYC processes to, you know, for people that are bringing cash in or getting cash out. So certainly those kinds of tokens, uh, we would prefer to work with those, um, you know, because ultimately, you know, we're going to be the one doing a lot of that transacting and we want to make sure that the, the quality of the cash in the trust is strong. 
Um, so definitely an interesting thing for us. I think it's something we'll focus more on this year. And, and I really think that's part of the gateway for decentralized exchanges is, is a really strong foundation of stable coins. Um, so one other thing that we've started doing recently is trying to get to know our guests personally a little better. Um, so we put a few people on the spot with some Game of Thrones questions, which I've learned that there aren't nearly as many Game of Thrones fans in crypto as I thought, which is excessively uh. surprising. But um, we'll do a different question for each of you. But Mark, if you could be a Game of Thrones character, which one would you be? Uh, I probably, I guess I'd go with Ned Stark. I mean, he seems like the best guy on the show. So I'm just... He dies so early, though. That's true. But like the entire rest of it, you know, there might be like some comparison here to Game of Thrones and This Is Us. So I might be the only person to see this. But like... Um, you know, he's still, his legacy sort of defines all the other characters, or at least protagonists going forward. So I think that's pretty cool, the lasting impact he had. And Kevin, I won't ask you the Game of Thrones question, because, again, we've been getting, Mark is the first person, actually, that has actually answered that question. Um, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I actually have my answer ready to go. I mean, oh, I got well, to be tormented, right? I'm a tall, redheaded guy with a big beard, so, you know. Let, Let's hear it. This is why we need video on the podcast instead of audio, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, tournament, uh, yeah. No, I like it. There you go. <sighs> and then another thing that we've been noticing, um, as crypto is so multidisciplinary, you know, at points in time, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of our listeners and um, a lot of people that have been chiming in on things like crypto Twitter have said that they're reading everything from comp side to cryptography Neil Stevenson spoke, obviously, with Cryptonomicon, and then everything to psychology, history of money, history of technology. What are some of the things that you have been reading uh, personally? Maybe are you guys, as a company, are there books that you guys are talking about that you think are really important right now that would be really helpful? Yeah, totally. So I guess I'll go first because um, it, it helps explain our name. <laughs> so Tagomi is actually a character in Man in the High Castle, and I, I reread that book and obviously watched the, the series show as well. Um, and I think what was kind of cool is like how globally connected a lot of the characters were, especially the main character, Tagomi, and the idea of kind of alternate ways of doing things. Um, in his case, trying to get back to the good alternate way, which is where we live today. Um, and so I think just questioning how things can be and how different they can be and not stereotyping the role people can play. And I think all of us are kind of in this you know, crypto evolution together and, and should see each other as teammates and, and promoting the kind of the ecosystem. And that was a little bit Tagomi's ethos on the show. And so that's obviously a, a appropriate book maybe to mention here. And Kevin, do you have one? Yeah, I, I found myself reading a lot more. Um, you know, I think you know, technology is important. Finance is important with cryptocurrencies. But I think the, the really interesting stuff happens when you think about the political science implications and the game theory implications about, you know, how do we, you know, how do we keep uh, chains safe? How do we sort of debate between delegated proof of stake and proof of work as ways to you know, find consensus? And then what's interesting is a lot of the real smart guys in the space not only have a great tech background, but they also understand those sort of uh, political arguments. And uh, you know, you, you, I love reading and watching debates between guys like Vlad Zamfir and Gavin Wood and you know, them debating you know, governance style for blockchains and should governance be on-chain or off-chain. Um, that's, I think, really fascinating because it, it sort of takes uh, 
it takes a lot of sort of obscure political science things and kind of moves them into a very real world of, of technology. And, you know, I'm going to build a multi-billion dollar blockchain and I don't want it to just become an oligopoly, right? It's, uh, I think that's really fascinating. And so to finish up, if you can tell the listeners where they can find out more about Tagomi, where they could possibly take a test run if you guys are ready to do that, when you're going to be ready to do that. Just give the listeners a little bit of uh, kind of one-on-ones where they can go, where they can learn more, and where they can find you guys. Yeah, totally. You can go to tagomi.com. Um, there's a request to invite. You know, you can fill out that information, and then we send you much fuller onboarding KYC AML, AML docs from there. And you know, if we have folks live and trading on it, we have a lot of folks in queue or currently being onboarded. But we're very much looking forward to um, having even more interest. So at tagomi.com, you can um, you know request an invite, and and we'll take it from there. Amazing. Well, Mark and Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We look forward to catching up with you again in a few months and seeing how the progress of Tagomi is going. Thank you all, and uh, have a good one. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. This this this